We are going to continue our journey through the Bible, and we're to the book of Philippians. Now, as we look at the book of Philippians, it's interesting as we see these different epistles that we have a little bit of background to them. And because we know where Paul was and what he was doing in the book of Acts, I should say some of them we have background to, but Ephesians and Philippians and some of the others, we do have some background information to as well. And it's interesting when we look at what took place to Paul in Philippi and then what he writes to the Philippian believers we see a definite connection between the two. In Acts chapter 16, we have Paul's first visit, most likely, to Philippi. And it is a divinely instructed visit. It's interesting, Paul is going up through Asia, where he has been before. And the Bible actually says that he was forbidden to preach in this city. And then he goes somewhere else and the Holy Spirit did not permit him to preach there. Which is interesting to think about. Why was he forbidden from preaching and sharing the message in these cities, these areas where he was? It seems to be because God was directing him elsewhere. And so Paul then has a vision And a man of Macedonia stands and pleads with him and says, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's verse 9 of Acts 16. And Paul then goes over to Macedonia. And as we see, he goes over to Macedonia and he goes to a couple places and he comes to Philippi which is the principal city of that part of Macedonia. Now, Philippi still exists, but it's very, very small. More, uh, there are probably more ruins than much else there in Philippi. And as Paul is in Philippi, he goes down to the river because he understands that there's people that pray on the Sabbath there in the river, uh, not in the river, by the river, And there he meets Lydia. And then he begins his ministry in Philippi. Now, we don't know a lot about what happens other than that there's a riot there because the owners of this uh, slave girl that has this uh, spirit of divination, they cast out this unclean spirit and they begin to riot. Paul is taken to prison. Maybe jail is the better term here. And what does Paul do in jail? Paul sings in jail. Philippians, not Philippians, Acts chapter 16, verse 25. It says, but at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's midnight. Probably Paul and Silas are unable to sleep, 
And so they are praying and singing hymns. Now, in verse 24, it tells us that they were in the inner prison. Now, if you're in an inner prison, do you think there's a lot of ventilation there? Probably not. Probably not a lot of ventilation. Probably not a lot of windows, if any. Generally, it would probably be considered the worst place to be. In the inner prison, probably the other rooms are about, so it would be the hardest to get out of. But inside this inner prison, they are put in stocks. Now, stocks are not comfortable, are they? In Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, we went there multiple times when we were in Virginia, and outside the jail they have some stocks that you can put yourself in and put yourself out of too very easily, fortunately. (laughs) And uh, uh, there's different types of stocks, Uh, I think that the stocks that they, I think they had multiple types, but one of the types of stocks, I'm not sure we know exactly which type they had, but you have your feet in, your ankles are in, and your arms are in. Now to be in that, in that position, you have to be bent over quite a bit. Now they had others where you have your head and your arms and you're not bent over as much, you're just standing up. We don't know what type of stocks they were in exactly, but if they were in the stocks where your ankles are in and your wrists are in the stocks, imagine being in that position for hours, but then imagine that before that you had been beaten with many stripes. They were had been beaten with many stripes. They were in stocks. They were in the inner prison. And what are they doing? Singing and praying to God. Now, imagine just the what it would feel like if you were had been beaten and you had wounds and blood oozing from the sores all over your back imagine to sing you have to take an inspiration right and so they are hurting every time they breathe in to sing And I am certain that nobody in that prison had heard singing from the inner prison of people in stocks that had just been beaten with many stripes before it was a first in the history of Philippi. But Paul had learned to rejoice in every situation, hadn't he? If you can praise God after you've been beaten and you're in prison and you're in stocks, you can praise God anytime and anywhere, I think. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The Philippian jailer ends up being converted and Paul has to leave. 
We don't know how big the church was. We don't know how many were there were. All that we know are Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his family. But apparently, a flourishing church grew up in Philippi. And years later, when Paul is in prison again, he writes to Philippi. And thus, we have the book of Philippians. And it's very interesting that the theme of the book of Philippians, there's different sub-themes going on, but the main overarching theme of the book of Philippians is what he had demonstrated in the Philippian jail some years before of rejoicing in God always. We see in chapter 1 of Philippians, he's probably in Rome. The reason we think that is because he mentions the imperial guard and he mentions Caesar's household. Now, if he's been in Rome, he has been in confinement and custody for at least over two years because he was two years in Caesarea before he got to Rome. And then there were the journeys through with the shipwreck on the island of Malta and all of that different things. And now he's in Rome and he's a prisoner in Rome. He has been deprived of his freedom for years. We don't know his conditions in Rome. Probably it was better than that jail in Philippi because he had some freedom. And notice what Paul says to the Philippians. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Here's this man that has been cut off from his active labor before for several years. And this is what he says. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so in verse 18 he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul writes to the Philippian believers and he says, I'm going to rejoice because of what has happened. I'm not rejoicing that I'm in prison, but I'm rejoicing that God can bring good out of this. The gospel's going further. People are bold to preach. Almost all of the imperial guard understand that my chains are for Christ, not because I'm some criminal. Paul begins the book of Philippians by rejoicing in his trials. Is that easy to do? When we have trials, and normally our trials are significantly smaller than being in prison for multiple years, 
when we have trials, frequently the last thing that we want to do is rejoice. But Paul says, look, rejoice with me. I'm going to keep rejoicing. I rejoiced in that Philippian jail when I was there, and I'm going to keep rejoicing even in Rome because God can work through anything and everything. Paul was the happiest man in prison. And the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, are some of the most triumphant and uh, uh, rejoicing epistles that Paul writes. He's encouraging people from jail. Why could Paul rejoice in prison? He did not allow circumstances to get him down. These were circumstances out of his control. There was nothing he could do about it. Once he was in prison, he could not change that fact. But he accepted it and allowed his plans to be changed without getting down about it. I'm sure that he did not really want to be in a damp, dirty prison being chained to a guard. I'm sure he would have rather been out preaching the gospel in throughout Asia and wherever else. And perhaps he was not rejoicing that he was in prison, but he was rejoicing that God was bringing good out of the difficulties and out of the trials. How do we learn to rejoice in our trials? It doesn't come naturally, does it? When we hit our thumb with a hammer, praise the Lord is not usually the first words that we're thinking of. But if we develop a habit of it, it can be. Notice verse 6 of Philippians 1. Paul has a confidence. Notice what his confidence is. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. That God is working. I might not like what takes place. I might not understand what takes place. But I trust that God is working. It's important to have the confidence that in every situation, God is working. This time of year... You can go to corn mazes and hay bale mazes. Actually, I don't know if there's hay bale mazes here. There's corn mazes though, right? And when you enter, not that I have, but I think my girls went to some place like that this week. When you enter one of those mazes, you have an idea that you're going to be able to get out, right? 
You have confidence that whoever designed the maze is not going to trap you in there forever, right? Sometimes life is like a maze, and if we don't have confidence in God, it's a maze that we wonder what the next corner is going to bring if it's just going to lead us to another dead end. But Paul said, I have confidence in this, that he who began a good thing, he's going to complete this good thing that he began in us. Paul had confidence that God was leading and life was not a dead-end maze. Circumstances may change. They certainly have this year, haven't they? (laughs) Things can change, and we might not like how they change. But we can have confidence, as Paul did, That God is in control. And that he is working everything out. He's going to complete the good work that he has begun in us. Notice chapter 4, verse 11. I think this is another key. How Paul can rejoice in his trials. Familiar verse. It's one that it's good for us to be able to repeat when we need to remind ourselves of such things. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? I have learned whatever state I am, whether I'm on that ship and we haven't eaten for 14 days, or whether I'm struggling through the sea to get to the island of Malta, or whether I'm chained to the prison guard, or whether the Jews are lying in wait to try to kill me, I have learned to be content. If we can learn to be content because God is in control, it's going to help us to rejoice in whatever trials come our way. But Paul was not only interested in rejoicing in trials. Let's go back to chapter 2 of Philippians. In every single chapter, Paul points out the need to joy or rejoice. I believe that the if you look at the words, the similar words to rejoice, joy, thanks, there's a family group of words. They're used over 20 times in the book of Philippians. And here's another time. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, Fulfill my joy, which is kind of like the noun form of rejoice. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul says, writes to him, and he's going to give them some advice here, but he says, I'll fulfill my joy. I want to have joy. I want to rejoice in you, but you need to be of one mind. If we were to look in chapter 4, verse 3, it seems like there are, or chapter 2, or verse 2, actually, of chapter 4, there were, seems like there were two ladies that, at least these are the ones he mentions, that need to be in the same mind in the Lord. There's some, some challenges going on. 
But I want to notice, he says, fulfill my joy, be of one mind. Then let's read verses 3 and 4. How does he say to do this? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, this is chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let each esteem others better than himself. Look, each of you, let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also for the interests of others. He says, fulfill my joy and be like-minded. But let me tell you some practical ways that that happens here. He says, in lowliness of mind, esteem one another better than yourself. Don't look on your own things. Look about, look at others' things. He's calling them to rejoice in their humility, to develop humility, and to rejoice when they are humbled. That's something else. We don't generally appreciate trials. But humility is something else that as Christians, we know that we should... uh, regard highly, but in society it's not regarded highly. And Paul says, be of one mind. How is this going to happen? Esteem one another better than yourselves. And then notice, how to, how can we do that? How is this even possible? Notice verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To rejoice always, to rejoice in humility, we need a new mind. And what's the new mind that we need? Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Ezekiel talks about having a heart transplant. Take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. But Paul is talking about a mind transplant here. From our natural mind that naturally esteems others better than, that naturally esteems us better than others. That naturally looks at our things and not at other things. And he says, look, you need to esteem others better and you need to look on other things, not your own things. How? By having the mind of Christ. We learn to rejoice always. By having, being content, but by having the mind of Christ. And then he delineates what the mind of Christ is. Verses 6 through 8 who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Jesus' ladder of humility here. The mind of Christ. Doing whatever it takes to save others. Let's go to chapter 3. Verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he's going to tell them when and how they are to rejoice in the Lord. Let's go to verse 7. Paul is going to tell about his Christian journey. And he's calling them to rejoice in their journey as well. Notice verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Did Paul have to leave some things behind to follow Jesus? He did, didn't he? But he says, what was gained for me, I counted it as loss. And then he continues, verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Everything else that I had, it's counted as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 9 and 10. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This passage that we're reading, verses about 8 through 14, if I had to pick one passage in the entire Bible that was my favorite, this would be it right here. Now, I don't want to only have to pick one. <laughs> but if I was forced to pick one, this would be it because of the amazing interplays going on here and just the message that it is. And we're not unpacking it all. We're just reading it. I've done entire weeks of prayer on this passage here. But let's keep reading verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Yes, you have to leave things behind. Rejoice. Yes, you have to forget things that are behind. Rejoice. Yes, you need to have one all-consuming goal. I, what I love about this is he says, this one thing I do. Paul had his mind set on one thing. It wasn't distracted with all the things going around him, which were many. He was pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
and to re- and to press on and to succeed in the journey, he had learned to rejoice. And in chapter 4, he says, how often to rejoice. We read it in our scripture reading. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case we didn't get it, Again, I say, rejoice. You can't mistake what he's saying, can you? He says, look, I'm in prison. I'm going to rejoice in my trials. You have to humble yourself. Jesus humbled himself. Rejoice in humbling yourself. You have to look behind, you have to leave things that are behind. Paul left a promising career of influence and wealth and popularity. Paul left it all behind and he says, it's like rubbish. I forget it because I want to know Jesus. Rejoice in the journey, whatever you have to leave behind. Keep pressing forward, however Difficult it is to keep pressing forward. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Paul was in prison, but he wasn't in the dumps. Paul was triumphantly shouting, rejoice Always, God is working. Whatever's in our journey, rejoice in Him. However much humility we go through, rejoice in Him. Whatever the trials are that we endure, rejoice in Him. If Paul could rejoice after being beaten, put in stocks, and put in the inner prison. If Paul could rejoice, after being shipwrecked and bitten by a snake, if Paul could rejoice, being imprisoned from Caesarea to Rome, do you think we can rejoice in the Lord always. Paul does not just theoretically tell us to rejoice. Paul demonstrates rejoicing always. It's not easy to learn. I'm not saying it's easy. But recognizing the confidence that we have in God and that we're pressing forward to that mark and that Jesus has gone before us. Whatever we go through, whatever the challenges and difficulties in the way, God has called us to rejoice in the journey. I want to have that experience. Do you want to have that experience as well? Rejoicing always. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the triumphant rejoicing of Paul, even in the most unlikely situations. 
And Lord, we pray. We pray that you will forgive us for when we have complained and doubted. Teach us to rejoice. Rejoice in you and rejoice always. We thank you in Jesus' name.